Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. God's grace has now appeared. By his grace, God offers to save all people. His grace teaches us to say no to godless ways and sinful desires. We must control ourselves. We must do what is right. We must lead godly lives in today's world. That's how we should live as we wait for the blessed hope God has given us. We are waiting for Jesus Christ to appear in his glory. He is our great God and Saviour. He gave himself for us by doing that. He set us free from all evil. He wanted to make us pure. He wanted to, us to be his very own people. He wanted us to desire and do, to do what is good. Well, good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's great to have you here with us. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, you're our guest, and uh, you are very, very welcome here. We as a church have taken a year to concentrate on the person of Jesus, his uh, miracles, the things that he did, um, his message, the things that he said, and who he was. He was fully man, and he was fully God, fully divine. And so this final term, we're considering the majesty of Jesus, and particularly examining a series of New Testament uh, texts that highlight the deity or the divinity of who Jesus is, that Jesus is fully God. And this morning we come to a text in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. In the Greek, this is just one sentence. That means there are no full stops and capitals. It's just one sentence, which would be too long for the English. Um, so in our contemporary reading of the scripture, it's, it's broken up. Um, but it's important to know that this is one continued thought. So let's just quickly read it together. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I initially chose this passage because, as you can see in verse 13, the author Paul writes of Jesus, our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here that Jesus is God. It's a profound statement, and it was very, very important for the early church uh, to define the divinity of Jesus. Jesus wasn't only fully man, he was fully God. He wasn't partly God, he was fully God. And this truth that they vigorously defended changed everything, changed everything for them, and it changes everything for us. And it's so important that we understand and have a proper understanding of who Jesus is in his manhood and in his Godhood. The letter of Titus is a small epistle, one that many of us would probably pass over or not 
have a whole lot to do with. I have a lot to do with it because I'm a pastor. And I frequently enjoy reading the pastorals. Uh, the pastorals are the first and second Timothy and Titus. These are letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to young pastors, um, men who had been set apart to plant churches and to oversee churches in their local area. And they are, in a sense, handbooks for pastoral ministry. Uh, They focus very much on doctrine of Christ. They focus heavily on practical Christian living. And they're designed to um, use against false teaching. And this was the role of the pastors in the early church, was to um, raise up and train leaders was to promote good and godly Christian living amongst the people and to defend heretical teaching. Uh, The letter to Titus was written around AD 64 by the Apostle Paul to Titus, who was a um, Greek convert to Christianity, and he was situated on the island of Crete. And... uh, we start with, we're starting in verse 11. You can see that verse 11 begins with the word for. Uh, and the reason for that is, is because the preceding 10 verses, um, what Paul has done is he's actually given the practical application around relationships. And then he's going to give the doctrine, which is, is almost what Paul has done here is a reverse. Uh, normally, what we see in Paul's writing is the doctrine is followed by the application. Uh, But today, it's the different way around. So if you have your Bibles open, you'll see that in the first 10 verses of Titus, he's talking about how God's people ought to relate to one another, both um, in their relationships as the people of God, as husbands and wives, as slaves. And then we come to this word for. So what Paul is now going to do is, in a sense, give the doctrine, this is why you ought to treat one another this way. For God, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. I think we could say quite safely that the whole letter of Titus, which is three chapters long, very, very easy to read, um, could be summed up by saying that the gospel leads to godliness. The gospel leads to godliness. When we understand the goodness of the gospel, it will lead to godly living. For the grace of God has appeared. This passage, this sentence is just saturated in this idea of God's grace. And God's grace finds its fullest expression in the person of Jesus. The word appearing is uh, the word epiphany. And it's kind of that light bulb moment. An epiphany is when you have a moment of just crystal clear realization. And in a sense, the epiphany of Jesus means that when Jesus came, when he first appeared, when the sun rose and gives light to everything and everyone, there was a moment when the grace of God was fully realized and fully seen and fully comprehended. Up until that point, the grace of God was so evident, but the grace of God finds its fullest and most clearest expression in the person of Jesus Christ. As we spoke of last Sunday, the Son, uh, Jesus is the Son of God, and the Son radiates the glory of the Father. When you look at the sun, you can't really see the distinction between the rays and the sun, where the rays begin and where the sun ends, for example. It's, it's all connected. 
And the role of the Son is to glorify the Father, but they are both equal in the Godhead. So the grace of God appears in the first appearance. This passage will speak of two appearances. The first advent of Christ, which concerns Jesus' birth, his life, his death and resurrection and ascension. And his second appearance, which is his second coming, that day that we expectantly look forward to. For the grace of God has appeared. Grace is a word that means unmerited favour. And the grace of God is exactly that. For many of us who have accepted God, who have accepted Christ, and we've experienced the wonder of God's grace, a, a, a gift that has been given to us that we did not deserve. Christ paid the, the price for the penalty of our sins that we could not pay in ourselves. It's a marvelous gift. The gift of grace is indeed amazing. It is completely unexpected, and yet it is who God is. He is a God of grace. Paul fills this out a little bit more in his letter to 2 Timothy, where we read, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There is nothing that you or I could ever do to earn God's grace or God's favour. It is a free and undeserved gift. Grace leads to the offer or the opportunity of salvation. I like the message version of this verse, which says, salvation is for everyone. And whilst not all people will accept or receive salvation, the opportunity is there. Think of the image of the sun. The sun does not discriminate. It shines on all people. And in exactly the same fashion, the salvation offered through Jesus Christ is available to all people. The offer is there. And what, what are we actually saved from? Well, we're saved from our sin. We're saved from that which separates us from God. We're saved from our sins of the past. And there is a penalty to pay. The wages of sin is death, the Bible teaches. There is a penalty to pay. So salvation from sins in the past. But also salvation for the present through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, God empowers us to live lives that are increasingly pleasing to Him. We will never live a life free of sin. And that's unfortunately the reality of how things are. I was thinking of it this week. And sin is a little bit like washing your car and then leaving it parked outside when there's constant ash in the air. It just continues to gather and build, an experience that I'm well familiar with. But God gives us power to overcome. And whilst we will continue to live with sin and suffer the effects of sin in this life, God actually does something transformative in our hearts by His Holy Spirit. 
and places within us desires to live good and God-pleasing lives. And how incredible that not only are we saved from the penalty of sins past and empowered to overcome sin in the present, but also on that day when we will stand before our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, we will be presented as those who are pure, without any blemish, because of what Jesus Christ has done. This is the grace of God. There is no expiration to the grace of God and the salvation of God. And salvation is open to all people. There's no cutoff. This week, the um, entry is open for the six-foot track, which is Australia's toughest marathon. It's a 45 course marathon in the Blue Mountains. There's a lot of talk amongst my friends at the moment about this race. Um, It's 45 kilometres. The first 15 is downhill and then the, the final 30 is pretty much just you actually then you run through a river and then it's just uphill the whole way. It's an incredibly tough run but there are limited entries and not only do you have to you have to actually have you have to have registered a race in the previous year and achieved a certain time to be able to enter. But then there's only limited entries, unlike salvation. Salvation is available to everyone. And it is God's desire, as we read in 1 Timothy, that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. The grace of a God has appeared through his son Jesus Christ, and that grace has made salvation open to all people, just like the Son does not discriminate. God's grace does not discriminate and makes salvation available to all who would place their trust in Jesus Christ. Verse 14. In verse 14, Paul continues to expound on what the purpose of salvation is. We read, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself a people that are his very own. We've talked about what we are saved from. We're saved from our sins, past, present, future. But we're also saved for a purpose. God redeemed us, he rescued us, and he purified us. You might recall, for those who were here on Good Friday, we spoke about the boys, the the Thai soccer team, the wild boars, who were trapped in a cave for 13 days. And this incredible story of redemption and rescue. If you weren't here, you would have heard it on the news. It was an amazing rescue story. Those boys were all rescued alive from a cave they could they had no way of ever getting out of that place themselves alive but a a team of people went and redeemed them and rescued them from a place of death now when that team rescued them they didn't just take them out of the cave and then say our job is done there was a lot of work to then bring those boys back to good health and to give them a hope and a future And those boys' lives have been completely changed because of this experience. And when Christ redeems us, when we are saved, we are also cleansed. 
we are purified. And through the grace of God, we are set on a new path. We are given a new life. This word teaches that appears in verse 12 also means trains. So the grace of God brings salvation. And that grace that brings salvation teaches or trains us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. God's grace not only saves us, God's grace transforms us. The New Living Translation says, and we are instructed to turn. Remember the word repentance means to turn, to change the way you think and to turn around. And in a sense, when God's grace saves us and transforms us and we are brought into the family of God, there is a new etiquette. There is a new way of behaving and functioning in the family of God. Now, I don't know all the etiquette of the royal family, but I'm sure there are all kinds of etiquette that is required if you are a member of the royal family. And in the same fashion, what Paul is saying here is in the family of God, when you've been rescued and redeemed, there is a new way to live. And that way comes about by rejecting and by embracing. We say no in order to say yes. We say no by rejecting certain behaviours and patterns and lifestyles. We repent of those things that are against God's will and God's ways. And we say yes to a different way. We embrace and we pursue the ways of God. We say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And what this means effectively is that we say no to pursuing a life that has absolutely no thought or regard for God. Uh, To pursue things that are entirely to indulge and bring pleasure to ourselves with no thought for God or for others. We, in a sense, say no to the pursuit. The selfish pursuit of the self (laughs) is how we could put it. And without God, without any reference to God, this is how people tend to live in pursuit of self, in pursuit of me and what's going to be best for my needs, we are to reject and repent from that way of living. We say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. Now, there are all kinds of passions that we might have in this life, and many of them are good and enjoyable. But you can... I'm sure each of you can think about people you know who have hobbies that have turned into idols. And so much of people's time and money and thoughts and priorities can go into those hobbies which end up becoming idols. We are to say no because our only idol is to be God. And he desires that our time and our money and our energy and our resource and many of our thoughts would be directed to him. So we say no to the pursuit of self. In contrast, we say yes to being self-controlled. And what that means is having 
mastery over oneself, to being disciplined, to making good and wise choices. One translation um, says wisdom. We say yes to wisdom. Wisdom is having the ability to know what is good and right and what is wrong. To live up, to say yes to being upright. And upright means justice. We say yes to living, to pursuing upright or righteous lives. Righteousness is about right relationships. So being in right relationship with God and in right relationship with others. And we say yes to godly living. These three statements equate to the self, how I relate to myself, the control that I exercise over myself, the wisdom that I seek to apply to the way I live my life, the way I interact with and engage with others. I'm to be a person who loves my neighbour as myself, and that means being a person of justice, of seeking to live an upright life. And godly living refers to our relationship with God, It refers to having a good understanding, a good knowledge of who God is and then actually applying that knowledge to how I live my life. It's interesting, isn't it? We say no to the pursuit of self. We still say yes to self, but in a very different context. We say yes to a self that is informed by a life that is pursuing God and pursuing the good of the other. That's what we are to say yes to. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I wonder if this is what it means to work out your salvation. We've been saved by the grace of God. We are not saved because of anything that we have done. But once we've received that salvation, there is an application in the way that we live our lives as those who have been saved and rescued from darkness. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Do you ever find it hard to be a Christian? Do you find it hard to be a follower of Jesus? You know what? There's going to be a day when it's all going to be worth it. (laughs) Notice here that Paul writes again about the appearing. That word means epiphany. And on that day, when we see Jesus, when Jesus comes for the second time, there will be that light bulb moment when for those of us who have given ourselves and our lives to following Jesus, and we've lived through the joy, but also the challenge and the heartache of all that that has meant, it will all be crystal clear. Just as in Christ's appearing, the grace of God is fully displayed. When Christ appears for the second time, all the trials and tribulations and persecutions that Christians have gone through over the centuries will be crystal clear. It will be completely worth it. 
And what a glorious day the day of Christ's return is. It is a day not to fear, but a day to greatly anticipate and look forward to. We see in this passage that in one sentence, in one sentence, Paul speaks of the two appearances of Christ. And in a sense, we as God's people are to live out our Christian walk in light of these two appearances. The first appearance brings our salvation and it trains us for godly living. And the second appearance fills us with hope and motivation towards doing good. So we're to be people who live with great expectation. We look forward with hope to that wonderful day when Christ will return. I wonder how many of us live in the light of eternity. It's very easy, isn't it, to live in the light of the present the present circumstances, the present situations and trials that we face. Even just to live in light of the years that we might have here on earth. But what does it mean to live in the light of eternity? It changes our priorities. It changes our perspective. It puts things into the proper context that we are people of eternity, that a wonderful, glorious day when our King of Kings will return is coming. We are to be be people who live with great expectation for that glorious returning. And that expectation and that glorious grace of God causes us to be people of action, eager, eager, to do what is good. We read in Ephesians 2.10 that God has prepared in advance good works for us to do. And those good works are so varied, but they certainly relate to being people who live lives um, of wisdom, of godliness, lives that are seeking to live in right relationship with God and others, lives that are seeking to pursue God and His holiness and live in devotion to Him. What an awesome passage of Scripture. The majesty of Jesus is so evident right over this text. It's evident in the way that Paul refers to Jesus as God, first and foremost. But the majesty of Jesus is in this text, in the way we see the grace of God realizing its fullest, most complete expression in the person of Christ and how that grace offers salvation to all. And when we've received the salvation of God through Christ, it transforms us to be people to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and yes to pursuing a life of justice and goodness and following and pursuing God. And in doing so, we live with great expectation for the second coming, the glorious return of our King. And this expectation and hope motivates us to be a people who act and who live out what we believe. That's Titus 2, 11 to 14. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much.
for the majesty of Jesus. And that incredible epiphany when we saw Jesus in, we saw your goodness and your grace, Lord, expressed in the person of Jesus in your first coming. We thank you, God, that your grace was poured out on the cross of Calvary, that our sin, past, present, and future, has been completely dealt with. And we can have total confidence in our salvation. Thank you, God, that you transform us by your Holy Spirit to be a people who walk humbly with you, who love you and pursue peace and justice and goodness. Lord, may we be a people who live with great expectation for your glorious return. And may the thought of your returning and making all things right give us the motivation, Lord, to keep doing good in your name. We know, God, that we are not saved by our good works, but we are indeed saved for good works that you have planned in advance for us to do. Fill us and lead us by your Holy Spirit to be your people and to live in light of your first and your second coming. We pray this in Jesus' wonderful, magnificent, majestic name. Amen. Well, thank you for worshipping with us this morning. Just a couple of brief announcements. Um, After the service this morning, we'd love for you to, if you